0: Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the Clarkson Ignite podcast. I'm Alex and I'm Tyler. We are visited today by Dr. Dale Scriven who is the Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences. He has a background in bioethics and degrees in both mathematics and philosophy. What do you think about today's podcast Tyler?
1: Yeah it was it was really cool to to listen to a lot of his stories uh, that he's accumulated throughout his life. He's lives in a lot of different places and had many different experiences and worked across various fields and so I think he brings a very unique perspective to Clarkson in terms of the amount of opportunities that, uh, that are offered to students that he can kind of initiate.
0: I mean, he definitely brings his background in philosophy home here. Um, he said some things that really resonated with me. I honestly, I, I, really felt, um, I really felt connected and I felt that he was very genuine with the way he talked about Clarkson and talked about people um, and how to, I guess, engage with people
1: yeah absolutely
0: all right well let's get into it this is the Clarkston Night podcast hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Across the Campus Uh, we're joined today by Dr. Daryl Scriven Um, he works primarily uh, in the a lot of different fields of sure. innovation, yeah. uh, as well as bioethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and to kind of start off, uh, why don't you tell us a little about, about yourself and uh, the work you do.
2: Okay, great. So I'm Daryl Scriven, as has been said. I am Dean of Arts and Sciences here at Clarkson. I'm also a fellow in the Shipley Center for Innovation. So my career has been very eclectic. My background is math and philosophy, I've owned uh, a number of businesses. I've done some documentary films, some novels, and you know, Clarkson is the kind of place that can appreciate a guy like me who gets into a lot of things and tinkers, and it's not a liability; it's more so an asset. So, with that being said, I've been here uh, one year as of last week, and very, very happy to be here because it's an exciting time in the life of Clarkson. And talking
0: about your uh, – just jumping into your math and philosophy kind of mm-hmm. combined, mm-hmm. that intersects right at bioethics, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about bioethics and what it is, what that means to be doing research in bioethics?
2: Sure. So, so bioethics is a field that emerged because of a lot of the issues that arise in medical ethics uh, – the medical field, rather – Health care, um, so one, one question was, how do we advance knowledge and science? Another question is, as we do that, how do we make sure that we respect the rights of other people? So I actually about ten years ago became a part of the National Center for Bioethics at Tuskegee University. As wow. you may know, the Tuskegee was the site, Of uh, a syphilis study that was done by the U.S. Department of Public Health, where they told these men that they would be treated for syphilis, but instead they were studying the effects of untreated syphilis. And they had every intention to take these men to autopsy, basically let them die of syphilis, to see the effects of untreated syphilis in the African American male. So, as a result of this, you know, it got found out, but but eventually, President Clinton issued a national apology. He established his bioethics center, and many people started doing the work of bioethics to say, if we're in the medical profession, if we're in healthcare, if we're doing scientific research, what are the things that need to be in place to make sure that human beings, animals are being respected, are being treated with dignity? It's informed consent. You can't deceive people and think that it's okay because you're doing a greater good for humanity. Um, because the minority, the marginalized people, always suffer in those instances, you know, with that kind of uh, utilitarian calculus. So I got into that work because philosophy for me was theoretical until I had some kind of practical application of it. So that allowed me to get into the community talk with people, talk with survivors, talk with their families to say um, not because we're in the academy, we know everything, but we also need to have dialogue with the community to see what kind of needs and what insight they have. So it was really a great position to have. A lot of my work writing since has been about that, and because of that, I think I bring a, a very fresh perspective to what it means to do academic work and connect it to the community.
0: Okay. What uh, what works have you worked on in it? I know you've written a few different books. Yeah. Um, yeah. So talk about a l- little bit about your works.
2: Okay. All right. So I-, I went to Purdue for graduate school, and there I studied African-American philosophy, uh, philosophy of religion, um, a lot of social and liberation philosophy. So I wrote a book on a guy named David Walker, who was a 19th century abolitionist. He was trying to um, end slavery, but he was also trying to educate people on the evils of slavery and and, the, and its thought. So I wrote a book on David Walker. Um, since he had been dead almost 200 years, I really engaged his work and asked him philosophical questions and then kind of unearthed the answers. So I called it Conversations with David Walker. But I've also written books... Um, that range from religion to perfect, uh, personal development. I wrote a book with my daughter called uh, I Played Monopoly with My Daddy, which which was a real-life Monopoly game I played with my kids. We we had rental property, and so I gave them the choice of I can give you 1500 bucks now, and you can keep it and spend it, <laughs> or you can give it back to me, and you can buy an interest in this home where after the rent is paid, You get the difference. And so I remember um, my oldest daughter stood there, and she stood there about five minutes in front of this house. I mean, it's a long time. And she said, how much will I have left after I pay the rent? And I said, maybe about $100. And she said, okay, so in 15 months I'll have this $1,500 back. I said, yep, and then after that you'll have, you know, increasing – so they all said, "Okay, Dad, we'll do it." <laughs> and uh I tried to teach my children early that you can be an entrepreneur, you can be an educated person, you don't have to choose, you can do both, and so you know, my kids have started businesses, and now they're all college age, and so they're they're doing that. but um just really good experiences. so I've written a number of books, done documentary films on student loan debt. Um, how to get out of it, um, talking about the crisis, uh, the state of the black college student, just really things that said, if I'm going to be in education, let me not just be part of the industry, but let me do something helpful. So I've tried to externalize my work to make sure it connects with people's lived experience.
0: I love that. Uh, It's a beautiful sentiment, thinking about how you can really give back to not just in oh yeah, this is academia. This mm-hmm. is life. This is things you need to know for Absolutely. your life and stuff Absolutely. like that. Absolutely, it's definitely yeah. important. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So uh, and in the field of bioethics, mm-hmm. I know um, a lot of things are uh, impacted, such as like animals, uh, the environment, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and in in this field, where do you see um, where do you see these types of experiments going? Especially um, currently, I know that. There was some recent works published uh, in the studies of mice mm-hmm. and just killing just millions of mice yeah. for um, the sake of, I guess, us. And what are sure. you? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, you know, it's um, a friend of mine uh, recently came to Clarkson and he did a presentation on whether robots feel pain. Okay, and the premise of his presentation wasn't necessarily about the mechanics, the physical stuff of a robot and whether it can feel, experience pain, but it was this idea that we have a tendency as humans to other or or or, or make different or even lesser separate beings. So we have done that with each other at times in history. We have done that sometimes... Um, with women. Men have done it with women. It happens with race and ethnicity. So it also happens with other species. We either treat their pain as minimal, we treat it as negligible, we treat it as non-existent, and so we really have to ask ourselves um, if we value life, we need to interrogate the ways that we get at what we call progress or Human flourishing at the expense of other beings. Now, having said that, um, you know, of course, there's a there's a cycle of life on one hand, but on the other hand, as you said, you know, there's there's a calculus. Are are, are millions of lives of another species worth sacrificing for? You know. Some either gains, and now we know there's some trivial gains like beauty products that, that, that animals get tested on. But there could be some scientific gains that say, you know, this furthers our lives or whatnot. But still, we really have to value, I guess, all sentient beings in a way that says, if I can experience pain, if, if, if my life is valuable and worthy to be preserved, then other lives are as well. So those are the kinds of questions that we push in bioethics that, you know, if, if, if there's a profit motive there or if there is a, a, a big scientific goal there, people may not be as conscious about because they feel, hey, if I have those considerations, it's going to, it's going to stall my progress. But there's a, par- there's a place in the ecosystem of this thinking for all of us, and we need the ethicists. Because, if not, I mean we can build a bunch of Frankensteins and we can do a lot of things, but should we do it,
0: it it's really dehumanizing to um, to do a lot of these things, um, and you're like, yeah, well, it's in the name of science like mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. we' well, like what but when you do these types of experiments, how harmful they are to people in general exactly. is is definitely telling um, mm-hmm. a lot, and I think the the whole Uh, do robots feel pain Mm -hmm. is and yeah it's not a a literal yeah do robots feel pain no it's more of a philosophical from a standpoint um because they are the furthest thing from humans currently so it's like yeah these are not sentient objects but like at the same time like if we look at this from a bunch of different works we've seen we, we we can kind of have that philosophical idea of like yeah so,
2: And I think, you know, given the advances in, in, in AI, artificial intelligence, at some point we're going to be asking that question seriously because these robots are going to be able to do lots of things. They're going to be able to process lots of information and make decisions. And, you know, if we put them in, you know, the way we like to do it is put them in humanoid form. And so we relate to them more like humans. But even if we didn't, the, the question is. Do we have the right to abuse, mistreat, destroy um, because we, quote, unquote, call them non-human or we call them robots? It almost is a justification for us to be brutal and treat them in ways that are dismissive. And if we transfer that thinking to animals, um, other human beings who have been, you know, non-defined or redefined, then we can see the parallel in the thinking. Right. So in order to correct it in one instance, we need to really interrogate it in all.
0: I, I 100% agree with you. Mm-hmm. I can, honestly couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, uh, and sh- kind of shifting back to talking about um, your ability that you have to mm-hmm. uh, educate people, especially in terms of ethical, or not ethical, but um, practical thinking, practical mm-hmm. knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, your Golden Knight's like RISE initiative and what what all that stuff is.
2: Yeah, so, so Golden Knights RISE is the strategic plan framework that Clarkson has set out. So it has pretty much five pillars, and they're pretty traditional pillars, academic success, uh, you know, student success, um, the work environment being one that's conducive to success, um, making sure that our research enterprise is, what it ought to be as, a, as an R2, Research 2 level institution. But um, the way that I fit inside of that framework is to operationalize some of those things. So in the School of Arts and Sciences, I was asked to put forward a strategic vision, and I call that vision competitive advantage. And what I'm trying to do is position Clarkson, but particularly the School of Arts and Sciences, to in the marketplace to show that we do much more than foundational things. So when people think of arts and sciences, because it's so varied and eclectic from humanities to chemistry to biology to physics, they think of their calculus sequences, their chemistry, their physics, and then they think of going on to other, you know, majors. But in the school of arts and sciences, we have five PhD programs, We have master's degree programs. And so we wanted to position the School of Arts and Sciences in the public imagination so that people understand that we really offer a unique expression of these degree programs. And when we put all these things together, things um, that we're going to offer like three plus one degree programs where people can get a bachelor's and a master's degree in four years instead of just getting a bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. in four years. They can do all this undergraduate research, the the micro-credentialing and the badging, um, the ability to have the uh, internships and co-ops, and really, we're doing this build out of uh, a place to do this in our in our new science center. When you put all these things together, we're creating the value proposition that says, with Clarkson and particularly in arts and sciences, you get so much more than you would get some other place that we're helping you make the decision because when it's all said and done, given how our graduates go into the market, between sixty-five and seventy-two thousand dollars a year, versus very, uh, that being very lower in, in other places. When you add it all up, our graduates have a competitive advantage at Clarkson. So, Golden Knights Rise is the outgrowth of our previous two strategic plans: Evolution to Excellence and Clarkson at One Twenty Five. This is like the third phase of, okay, now that we have um, put ourselves in a position to be excellent and, and market leaders, now what makes this education unique and distinctive? And part of why I was brought here is to make sure that our our emphasis on entrepreneurial science really has some substance and really um, – Put us in a position to be leaders nationally, you know, in terms of what that means and 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 who owns that.
0: I I think that um, we do have an advantage, and I really thank Clarkson for the opportunities. And that's the main thing that I've noticed about Clarkson is just there is so many opportunities mm-hmm. as far as research as like even with undergrads, yeah. Um, professors, you could talk to them, and they'll talk to you like you're yeah. a person. Yeah. Um, and, uh, everything that I've, I've done here at Clarkson, I've done undergraduate, I've had like jobs, like in the makerspace or mm-hmm. working with like hands-on equipment and stuff. Uh, and it, it makes us really marketable. And I, I think it's one thing that's really important for people to know about Clarkson is that it's, it's making, it makes you very, you kind of almost have to be, um, not, you have to be very resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the resilience that comes out of you, and it makes you more driven um, and ambitious. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I, I I agree there. And I think that, um, you know, Clarkson's an ecosystem, so there there is the undergraduate research and the opportunities and, like I said, the micro-credentialing and badging. But then the graduate programs, they actually – put us in a position to have national prominence in terms of being a research facility. It draws resources. It allows us to have graduate students and teaching assistants that help with the undergraduate teaching and learning experience. And so, I mean, it's a really fantastic place, given that it's a relatively small school, 4,000 students, to have that kind of um, structure and exposure is really phenomenal. Because really, you... You you often have to have a school that's at least twenty thousand, twenty five thousand students to have. So Clarkson's like the best of both worlds in many ways, and and, and some of the things you all are able to do um, in the Ignite and Maker Space is incredible.
1: Absolutely. So I know you mentioned the uh, renovation of the Science Center somewhere in there. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit uh, more detailed about that and how that's going to further these opportunities that that we're bringing students?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So we. We hired an architectural firm called JMZ Architects, and they are a women-owned firm, and they do a lot of work um, in New York, but particularly with science centers. I think they have renovated maybe over 100 uh, facilities in terms of science centers, and so we feel very comfortable with them. What What we've been doing is we have two committees. One is a steering committee that's composed of faculty as well as myself and the university architect, Anna Thomas. And we have an executive committee with, again, uh, me and the university architect, the president and the provost. And what we're doing is we're getting campus feedback and buy-in to what is needed in this new science center, whether it's more space because we're expanding it. It's going to be 40,000 square feet of expansion. We're also renovating the existing lab space because I mean, you all have been over there, right? It's, yeah, yeah. it's one of those places where you're like, okay, I have to take a class, but I never see people going in. I always see people running out of. It. You know, it's one of those things why you just want to go over to the student center because it's open, it's airy, it's got yeah, windows. Sure. And so, what we want to make sure is that the new science center is inviting. It's functional but it's beautiful it's a place that people want to be yeah. in students want to be in we we think it'll help us recruit we think it'll help us draw donors and even corporate partners but just more than anything we want it to be a jewel of the campus because everybody has to take classes over there mm-hmm. and everybody remembers their experience walking through that little cavern thing or whatever whatever yeah. that is and we just so we have now gone past the concept design phase where we've gotten quotes back and we're it's going to be two phases so the first phase will be the expansion the second phase will be the renovation because we need a place to put the old stuff we were doing so we can renovate the old place so that's why we'll build the new part first but they should we should break ground maybe uh a year from now we've raised the funds pretty much for the first part we're raising the funds for the second part so it's going to be fantastic i mean Walls of windows so you can see the Adirondacks. Mm-hmm. Um, collaboration spaces for students to get in and you know create and and interdisciplinary kinds of things. There are going to be some two-story labs because some of our professors are doing research with robots and flying drones, drones right. and whatnot. Right. Okay. So it'll be two spaces where there'll be a mezzanine um, where you can look down into the um, the lab. It'll be two stories you can you know walls or windows where you can see in and they'll be able to black it out when they need to, but just uh something that showcases what we do mm-hmm. so when people walk by or they're or they're um you know they have a class in there, they can't wait to get in there because it's a fun space right. it's it just feels different you know um some break rooms some some places where students can reserve and just be uh some lounge areas. So I really just transform it because, you know, I've heard, you know, different descriptions of it, and it hasn't been positive. But um, we know that it's a very important part of campus. Alums from time immemorial till now have been in there, and so everybody's really excited about this expansion so it's, it's going to be great yeah absolutely it's um, very necessary yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the students mean, will very much appreciate
0: it. yeah <laughs> uh, there was even rumors going around that the the science center as we know it now mm. uh, was an accident because some designs got switched <laughs> okay. with some some place in arizona yeah, yeah yeah
2: yeah i don't i don't know the history of it but i look at some pieces and go hey this is like a hallway to nowhere the, uh, the, the yeah. second story. A second story of the lecture hall. science center. When
0: you go up the stairs in that main area, yeah. it's just like four rooms of just you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> there. And it, it's it's definitely it's nice to hear though, um, about because there's so much space in there. Yeah, but yeah. it just needs to open up, yep. and it needs to have natural light, and it needs to have something that we can. Um, I guess, see nice open floor. Yeah. Very nice. It'll be
2: there. And we're also going to build a bridge from it to uh, some of the other buildings so you don't have to, like, walk out and walk around. It's really cumbersome getting in and out. We're just trying to make it more user-friendly, more functional, but then really make it um, a beautiful, attractive place. I mean, I think that's what's missing, Mm -hmm. you know, a place where you want to be, you know, because it's kind of like, Oh I gotta go over there. Go yeah, yeah, I yeah. gotta go to yeah. The I'll be walls. If I'm not back in an hour, man, you know, you go yeah. <laughs> <laughs> call my mom. <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh to circle back to your background, okay. um I know you've you've traveled many different places in your life. Yeah. Can you talk about uh j- you just talk about your travels in general and how that's influenced your perspective and what you think that helps you bring to your current
2: role? Yeah, man, that's a great question. So I I remember growing up in Jacksonville, Florida. I didn't have a lot of resources, didn't have a lot of possibilities. So I really didn't leave the state of Florida until I went to grad school at 21. So at that time, I was you know I didn't go a lot of places at all. I went to grad school in Indiana, and then you know that allowed me to kind of see some different people meet different folks be it at different institutions but then when I started my first job I became um, part of the international educational committee and so we sent some students abroad to Cairo and to um, Tel Aviv Israel and so I got a chance to go over to Tel Aviv to check on our students and then we flew over to Cairo and I'll tell you so this was about 1999 and oh boy. and there was some hostilities between <laughs> <laughs> between Cairo and, and Israel the Muslim and Arab uh conflicts and so I remember driving to the airport and in you know so Tel Aviv there like these armed guards with machine guns at the airport they're going through your stuff and our our tour guide says don't tell them where we just came from, and I said, "What do you mean? Don't tell them? These guys have machine guns." And she said, "Look, if you want to get on that plane to Cairo, don't tell them where we just came from. And we just come from like Jerusalem or something." But so okay, so don't tell them. All right, so we get <laughs> so we get on the plane, we get off in Cairo, we get off in Cairo. There are guys at the airport with machine guns, and so these guys at the airport machine guns. Okay. So then we get on the streets of Cairo, every 30 yards, they got machine guns. And I'm like, okay, what's what's really going on here? But our students are here. So our students are having a fantastic time. They're having a 4th of July ceremony for us. They invite us to the Cairo Opera House. I mean, it's a fantastic experience, but in the midst of it, we're surrounded by guys with machine guns. So I said, all right, um, the world is a very different place where people have different ideas of what it means to live well. Uh, at the same time, um if you familiarize yourself with cultural differences, you don't have to pass judgments as much as you can understand, and you can have mutual respect and there can be cultural reciprocity so I said all right well let me let me travel a few more places and so I went to I think Wales to give a talk at the University of Wales, and actually, it took my whole family, and we had a great time i mean i and I've always believe that your family is how you live and experience the world. So I remember giving a lecture. and I had my daughter. She was two years old. She was crying in the back. And I, and I was talking, and I just said, well, come on up. So I had her in my arms, and I finished giving this lecture to these people in Wales, and it wasn't a problem at all. You know, the fact that, you know, I could connect my family life and my intellectual life, my academic life, my work life. Was amazing, and so they wanted. It made me want to be a part of the university, and be a part of the academy. So, I've been to um, Spain, all of North Africa, South Africa, uh, lots of places in Europe. I'm a Sherlock Holmes buff, actually. So, I've been to 221B <laughs> Baker Street um, in the Sherlock Holmes Museum. There was a traveling exhibit in Australia, and uh, we visited that. So, you know, been to Australia. And it just really shows you that what we think of as right, wrong, um, we put labels on. When you travel the world, you see that people are basically doing the best that they can with what they understand. Customs are different. But if you move past those things, you find camaraderie and connections that uh, transcend national boundaries at the end of the day we're all people at the end of the day we're all people and so what i bring how i reflect that back into my work is when i'm dealing with different people from different places i look at them and from a a half full perspective we all have something to contribute and bring we just got to make sure that we collaborate we cooperate we work together we respect each other and that's work for me because it's allowed me to um not be taken aback because people are different. You know, I start with the fact that people are different and that's a beautiful thing. It means that we can contribute something um, and make it unique and make it our own and value it the way that it should be valued. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a very good, uh, I think, philosophy to have. And mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, moving on to, I guess, I know you've told a lot of stories throughout, and it's certainly been a gift to hear. Um, What is one piece of advice that you would give to students currently? I would
2: say um, be open. Any opportunity that comes your way, take it. Because I started in engineering. I had a 4.0, but I interned, and I realized I didn't want to do that. But I liked the math, so I kept the math degree. And then I met a woman who was doing a philosophy degree, so I dumped my electives into philosophy. And I got a second degree in philosophy. And then I went to graduate school in philosophy. And then I started doing bioethics. And then I started, you know, day trading and, and <laughs> doing, uh, <laughs> you know, documentary film and novels. And so it's a journey. And the more you open yourself to, the uh, the more curious you stay, the more opportunity that you'll find. And really the thing that speaks to you, you know, the thing that's looking for you is, is looking for somebody who's open to this opportunity. And if you close yourself off, if you, if you define yourself as only a this or this is my major, then you miss a lot of things that could be beautiful expressions of what you can do. So stay open and and really stay curious.
1: Yeah, it's a really strong message for students.
2: Um,
0: what would you say uh, you're m- most excited about as far as innovation on Clarkson campus goes?
2: I am excited about really the, the ecosystem of Clarkson. So when I got here, one of the first, I got here last April. So one of the first things I was asked to do was judge the, um, President's Challenge, and I saw all these student teams from freshman level up, creating all these different business ideas and pitching them and winning prize money. And I was like, "Man, this place is really investing in this idea of entrepreneurial mindset." So that's really what gets me excited. I think for me, um, if I can speak personally, when when universities encounter me, they either say one or two things. They say wow, you quit your job to start a business? Or they say, man, this is fantastic. You quit your job and you started a business. And so <laughs> right. most universities are the first. They see it as a deficit. Like, why didn't you just stay working, man? What What's wrong with you? Right. But when I talked with uh, Tony Collins and Robin Hannigan, our provost, what they both said to me is, you have the kind of DNA that reflects Clarkson's values and reflects what Clarkson's about, this entrepreneurial mindset and whatnot. So it was a place where I was welcome. So I'm excited about the ecosystem of Clarkson because it says we can take practical information that we get in our degree programs, but we can then apply that to take uh, startups to market or teach people to take products from their education into the world, it's a usable education. So I'm really, you know, I'm I'm really stoked about being a part of something that's not just classes and credits, but really I can see the difference that can be made and that I can contribute, and then you all are the proof of the concept.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, there is really a lot of things that students can do to either start their journey to that, like, um, and get those skills necessary uh, to actually do that. Yeah. Most of our classes, or at least as far as my experience goes, most of my classes uh, have been project-based. They've been very hands-on, mm-hmm. and it's like you create a concept, you um, design it. Like currently right now what I'm doing is in um, an, ad- an advanced deep learning course. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is we started with the- our professor gave us a project, and um, – it was uh, how to control drones using just gestures. So mm. we were given a 3D, like a depth-sense camera, um, and then we were given um, just the drone. Yeah. And based on our just hand movements, um, we actually made it so it's omnidirectional. So we just point wherever we want the drone to fly, <laughs> yeah. and then it just flies in those directions. It's cool. So, cool. Um, among those things. I mean, and that's
2: amazing. I mean, yeah. to, because... To think about sitting in a classroom, people writing on chalkboards and you just taking notes and taking tests and you regurgitate stuff to being able to do what you're doing, which, you know, five, 10 years from now, that could be a company that, you know, multinational company that employs, you know, hundreds, thousands of people that feeds all these families that I mean, that is really what an educated person should be able to Mm -hmm. do. And I
0: think what's the most important, and I think what is evolving as humans evolve is not just our cultures that need to evolve, um, but also our our ideologies need to evolve, move forward, um, reinvent some ways we think things such as like learning, Mm -hmm. um, like as such as how we practice religion and things like that. Um, I think that learning should especially be uh, transformed from a here's some information, uh, now recite the information back to okay. me, to um, let's do something with this. Let's mm-hmm. actually focus on applying these skills. Yes. I think applied classes and courses are the best way to learn anything. Absolutely, I agree
2: 100%. Mm.
0: So, uh, your biggest challenges. Um, what would you say your biggest challenges are right now um, that you face?
2: Interesting. So couple challenges. One, um, being a dean means that I am both a manager of faculty. I deal with um, issues as they arise on the student side. But I'm also a spokesperson for the school, a fundraiser. And so balancing my time between those two. So, of course, the Science Center is, you know, our our number one priority to get done. And given that we're having our leadership shifts with Tony Collins transitioning out, our new president, Mark Christensen, transitioning in, we are, you know, doing the fundraising and the building project and strategic planning. And so there are just a lot of moving parts right now. So I would say besides the fundraising, the moving parts are a challenge. It's a good challenge. I think, um, you know, change can be good when it's managed well. And so the, the campus is excited for the change. But, you know, it, it can be challenging because people have lots of questions and they want to know what's going to happen and this and that. But Clarkson's in a great place, and we're still on the move. We're building lots of things. Um, there's some building projects That'll start happening in the engineering, of course. Um, you know some of the projects that have been going on with Chill Arena and whatnot. So we're we're definitely on the move. We have very active alumni, but um, still, change is always a challenge. And I don't think people really fear change; they fear loss. So if we can communicate to them that change doesn't mean loss, but it means opportunity, then they're 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 less resistant and they're actually more invested and they get on board. That just blew my mind, actually. <laughs> I,
0: I always, uh, I actually was talking to someone recently about change yeah. and how I was like, you shouldn't fear change, you should welcome it. Yeah. Um, but that summarized it beautifully, mm. that and I had never thought of it that way, that people do fear loss, yep. but it's not the change that they fear. Yep. Wow. Yep. Well, uh, with that uh, in mind, um, our time is just about up. Um, we really thank you for for having or uh, for coming on to the show. We loved you. Awesome conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and before we go, do you want any? Adi- do you have any additional comments? Sure. Just uh,
2: well, first, let me just thank you guys for having me. I think this is an amazing experience and what you're doing because it really gives. See, I don't get a lot of exposure some to some parts of the student body or Clarkson because I'm the dean of arts and sciences. And sometimes I only get exposed to arts and sciences people. But um, I've just created a student advisory council in arts and sciences that allows me to have student contact. But this is an amazing forum because it transcends even that. So I appreciate you all having me on. I also um, you know, just appreciate being at Clarkson in this time because it's really um, a, t- a dynamic time where lots is going on and we can kind of get caught up in the everydayness of things but you know from a guy who has been here a year it's like I'm completing my freshman year Clarkson is an amazing place and the alums I meet uh, I was just out in Phoenix I met a group of alums they were bonding around intramural soccer that they played 50 years ago here or the or the frat houses, or whatnot, and I have never seen that kind of alumni connection and love that you all have at Clarkson. So, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, and um, really, the students are are bar none. You know, creative, discoverers, excellent. So, you all would be commended on that. I, I really appreciate it, um, and 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 the concept even of entrepreneurial science really encapsulates what Clarkson means and what it's going to contribute to the world moving forward. Yeah. Cool. So, so thank you all. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Thank you.